0: We're back in Deuteronomy, uh, we've spent the first half of the year, some of it anyway going through the first eight chapters of Deuteronomy and it's probably worth just taking a moment to relocate ourselves again in this book because it's a book written about times long, long ago and there are words in the book of Deuteronomy that we struggle with, that we've had to wrestle with during the first half of this year. The concept of God's judgement upon people in the land that Israel were on the brink of, is not e- they're not easy words for us to understand. But, but let's, let's summarise where we're up to so far. So, Israel stand on the edge of the promised land after their wilderness journey and, and as they prepare to enter in, Moses gives them a series of speeches, a series of talks reminding them of where they've come from, what lies ahead of them And how they're to live as God's people in this land full of other nations who all worship these other false gods. And we've learned how God provided the Ten Commandments for the people of Israel and how He called them above all else to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and strength. And in many ways, the whole of Deuteronomy is an unpacking of those words in that time and place. So over the coming weeks we're going to be getting into some more specific passages that speak about what it looked like for Israel in their time and place to love God and to love their neighbour. But today we're looking at these two passages from Deuteronomy 9 and 10 and and they call Israel just to step back for a moment and to look at themselves, to look at who they are, and who God is and what their relationship with their God should be like. Now, as we read through those passages in Deuteronomy, I don't know if you notice, but Moses' words to Israel are brutally honest. But they're also full of fatherly love and concern for his people. And if we listen carefully, they're also words that are dripping with the grace of and mercy of God. So how about we pray as we come to God's word today. Lord God, we thank you for your word that you speak to us through it and you promise that as we gather together today, your spirit is with us, teaching us and in fact has already been preparing us to hear your word today. So may you quiet our minds, still our hearts, that we might hear from you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Perhaps you've heard it it said before, something along these lines. What a comfort it is to know that God is on our side. Indeed, I think I've probably used words similar to that in conversation with people before and I think the intention is quite well-meaning. It's a way of expressing that God wants what is best for us that he's a protecting, defending and merciful God who cares for his people. And and scripture certainly uses language that describes God as being for us. Yet, I wonder if there's a little bit of a problem with this kind of language, with this kind of language of saying God is on our side. Does God really... Two sides. I remember as a young boy I used to pray that I would win sporting matches before I came to realise that that probably wasn't the most sensible prayer. What if someone on the other team was praying the same thing? And even still, what would make me more deserving of God's favour than anyone else? The problem of thinking that God is on our side is that it puts me at the centrepiece of life rather than God. Instead of us following God's ways, it's almost like we expect God to follow our lead, to meet our wishes. It's as if we begin to think of ourselves as somehow being more deserving of God's favour than others. And I think in many ways, this was the kind of problem that Moses was concerned about for Israel. Moses had traveled with and led this people for over 40 years. He'd watched this new generation grow up. He had loved them, been frustrated by them, and he knew their hearts. And he knew that it was likely that Israel, in the victories that were about to come their way as they entered into the Promised Land, would somehow come to think that they were untouchable, that they were the good guys and everyone else was the bad guys, that God was on their side and would come to their aid whenever they snapped their fingers. Well, Moses, in his speech, puts Israel squarely in its place. He wants to make it very clear to them that there are two reasons why God is gifting them the promised land and it doesn't have anything to do with Israel's goodness or their might or their righteousness. If Israel is going to be victorious, it's only going to be by God's hand. And, And notice the language in the first few verses of chapter 9. God is the one who goes ahead of you. He will subdue the nations. He will bring judgement upon them. He will drive them out. If anything, he will do all of this despite you, Israel. So why then, if not because of Israel's goodness, was God going to drive out these nations before Israel and give them the promised land? Well, Moses gives them two reasons. Firstly, Moses says, God is driving out these nations because of their wickedness. Israel are going to be God's chosen tool of judgement upon a people who are up to their necks in the blood of innocent people. And secondly, God is gifting them the promised land because he promised it to Abraham Isaac and Jacob, hundreds of years earlier. So Israel's victory in the land was not contingent on their own righteousness, but on God's desire to bring an end to evil and suffering and violence and his unrelenting faithfulness and grace to Abraham and his family. And Moses breaks it down in very straight words to Israel. Why are you receiving this wonderful gift of the promised land? It's not because of you. God's been good to you but it's not because you've been good to God. If Israel missed the point, Moses then really drives it home with these words. Understand then that it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess for you are a stiff-necked people. Like an ox that refuses the guidance of its master or a horse that pulls against the reins, This stubborn, proud people are about to stumble into the beautiful gift of the promised land despite themselves and have the gall to claim they deserve it. Well, not on my watch, Moses says. And if there's any doubt left in the minds of the Israelites, Moses, we didn't read these verses, but he spends the next 33 verses retelling them stories that prove their stiff-necked stubbornness. The golden calf, grumbling for food and water over and over again, refusing to go into the promised land the first time. You can just imagine, see this picture of the Israelites all listening to Moses and their heads drooping gradually lower and lower as they're chastised. It's this painful blow-by-blow reality check. So then we, 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 we might ask, and no doubt Israel would have asked this question, why then Israel? Why Israel? Of all the nations and tribes littering the globe, why would God choose to specially bind himself in covenant love to these stiff-necked, recalcitrant people? Why not choose a more easy-going, obedient bunch? Well, Moses doesn't really give us an answer to that question. He doesn't give us a why. Instead, he says this in the second passage that we read in chapter 10. He says, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. You know, the, the, the only answer we ever get in scripture as to why God chose Israel is this. Because God heard their cries, saw their plight in Egypt, remembered his promises to Abraham and had compassion on them. It was always God's gracious and merciful initiative. And this is how God has acted from the very beginning of creation. The whole of scripture, the whole of history opens with God acting for no other reason than an overflow of love. God didn't create the universe, this world, because we're deserving, but because he is a gift-giving, gracious God. And that's exactly how he continues to act towards us today. Our passage from Romans spoke of that earlier. While we were still sinners, while we were powerless to change our own circumstances, while we were stiff-necked and recalcitrant like Israel, while there was nothing that could make us worthy of God's love, Jesus gave his life for us. God poured his spirit out upon us. God adopted us as children into his family and seated us at his table. God gives, he blesses, he loves out of no reason but his goodness and then he invites the objects of his affection to respond to that love in humble, loving obedience. God's people are always called to walk with a posture of humility. Moses' great fear for Israel was that they would cease being humble and would grow too big for their boots. That they'd see themselves not as dependent on God's mercy but deserving of it. That they would think God was on their side when actually he was calling them to be on his side. And there is a radical difference there because there's a warning in this passage to Israel that's hinted at in chapter 10, verse 17, where Moses says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Israel, God says, I don't take sides. You are not untouchable or immune from my judgment and discipline. You're not the good guys here. I am. And I'm choosing to set my affections upon you. So come and humble yourself before me. <coughs> not sure how many of you are familiar with this film. Hopefully some of you. As I was preparing this sermon, I was reminded of a scene from the movie Hook, the one where Dustin Hoffman plays Captain James Hook and Robin Williams plays Peter Pan. And if you haven't seen the movie, I'll try and explain this scene to you. So Peter, Robin Williams, returns to Neverland as this old grumpy lawyer who's forgotten that he is Peter Pan. And as he encounters the group of lost boys that he used to lead... There's another boy who's now become leader of the clan and this boy's name is Rufio and there's this showdown scene between Rufio and Peter where Rufio draws a line in the sand with his sword and at first all the boys who, who don't recognise Peter run to join Rufio's side and they challenge Peter to come and join them until one young boy steps across the line and peers into Peter's face, looking deeply into his eyes and pulling and prodding at his face. Eventually, this look of realisation appears on the boy's face as he announces, there you are, Peter. And suddenly, at that moment, all the boys come rushing over to join Peter's side. Sometimes I wonder if, we, like Rufio, arrogantly draw lines in the sand and expect God to come and join us. That in our arrogance, we think far too highly of ourselves and and really, really don't see God very clearly at all, really don't understand his goodness and mercy towards us. We want a God who will do our bidding, follow our lead, We want a God who we can worship on our own terms. Maybe instead we need to be like that little lost boy who ventures to step over the line, to humble ourselves and to peer into the face of Jesus, throwing our lot in with him and declaring to the world with a look of wonder on our faces, there you are God. I wonder how well we understand and grasp the extent of God's mercy upon us. Just as Moses spoke to Israel, so the following words are true for us. To the Lord our God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet, though God is the God of all things, The Lord has set his affection on you, on us. And we might well ask, as Israel did, why? Why us? And the only answer we're going to get is this. It's not because we are worthy. It's not because we deserve his love. It's not because we're better than anyone else around us. It is purely because God has had compassion on us. Whilst these words were written to Israel many years ago, there's a continuing message here for us today. For like Israel, God has poured out his love and compassion upon us undeservedly. And the only response to that that makes sense, the only response when we understand our weakness and God's grace is one of humility. Now often when we talk about humility in our world, we think of humility as being to think, being thinking very lowly of ourselves, being thinking less of ourselves than we truly are. But perhaps that's just because we tend to think too highly of ourselves as it is. But humility is really to have a realistic view of oneself and of God. And and the reality is this, we've been given the gift of being called children of the living God purely because God loves us and gave his son to die and rise for us. We don't deserve it any more than Israel deserved the promised land. Our God does not show partiality. God is not on our side. Rather, he calls us to be on his side. In a book uh, I was reading titled, it's, it's titled, God is Not on Your Side. The author challenges his readers with this, Proposal that that many Christians in the world today are living as if God is on their side. That rather than worshipping the God of the Bible who calls us to his side, who invites us to seek his will, we make this naive assumption that everything we do is anointed by God simply because we know Jesus. We've somehow adopted this worldview that says, I can just carry on with life as normal but now with God backing me up. We don't seek transformation but comfort. We don't seek the kingdom of God but the divine anointing of our own personal kingdoms. Here's the thing though. We don't worship a God who is out to bless our every endeavour. Rather, we worship a God whose every endeavour is a blessing. I find my prayer life, I think, can be very revealing about how I view myself and how I view God. When I remember to, p- to pray, and that in itself says a lot, I find it all too easy to slip into shopping list prayers of asking God to fix all my problems and the problems of my friends and family. And don't get me wrong, God wants us to bring those things before him. But I wonder if sometimes I pray with this unspoken assumption that God is on my side and his job is to support me and do what I want him to do. Perhaps the most important words of the Lord's Prayer that we read earlier for us today are these. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Every time we speak those words, they should remind us God is the good guy and he's calling us to his side. Perhaps this week as we pray, we could practice beginning our prayers by asking God a question. What is your will for me today? Please grant me the strength to follow where you lead. One of the outcomes of God's grace to Israel in these passages is that they were to love the foreigner, the outsider, not to act as if they were somehow above them. And Moses says in this passage, God loves the foreigner residing among you and you are to love those who are foreigners. Israel couldn't claim that they were better than the nations around them even those nations that God was about to drive out. In fact, there's a sense, a hint of warning in this passage that Israel is quite capable of the same atrocities that God is judging the other nations for. When we look at the world around us, the society that we live in, it's easy to see ways in which life is out of order or ways in which scripture would describe people living in ways that aren't God's design for life. But before we point the finger and act high and mighty, we need to check for that log sticking out of our own eye because we're not the good guys. We're just the forgiven ones. final thought I'd like to leave with us today is that Moses speaks in some fairly... Foreign words to us today, but he says he invites Israel to circumcise their hearts. And I know that's pretty awkward and graphic language, but he's essentially saying this rather than being stiff necked and arrogant, allow your hearts to be changed and softened. Humble yourselves before me. You know, whatever grace Israel received from God, we have received more because God has not only granted us forgiveness through his Son, but also his Spirit who is at work softening our hearts and humbling us before him. Let us pray now that God would continue to soften our hearts and humble us, causing us to love our neighbour and live out of thankfulness for the undeserved compassion of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you in great thanks that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, not because we are worthy, not because of our righteousness, not because we deserve your love. You just have so much love to give. You overflow with love and indeed every breath we take is a gift of your love. And so, Lord, may we respond in humility and thankfulness, knowing that you're not on our side, you're not here to do our bidding. Rather, you call us in response to your love to walk with you in humble obedience. And so, Lord, may we seek your will. May your kingdom come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.